0: Hey, folks, thank you for tuning into this week's episode with me. I have uh, another guest that is going to be chatting with me on this episode. Um, But before we get into that, make sure to follow the podcast on Spotify and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And if you like a particular episode, uh, feel free to share it on your social medias. All right. Brian, do you want to introduce yourself?
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Jalen. My name is Brian Smith. I am a filmmaker, writer, and film scholar, uh, born in Chicago, Illinois, recently graduated from Oberlin College, and I'm now Ooh. a grad student at the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> I've,
0: um, I, yeah, I, I really appreciate you uh, reaching out to me and asking to come on. Um, one, because, like, I think I think your work is really, really cool. Um, could you say more about the kind of work that you uh, currently do and maybe a little bit about the fellowships that you've had?
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely. So the research that I'm taking to um, USC uh, is um, design. I designed that two years ago with the Mellon Mays Undergraduate Fellowship that I received uh, while I was still at Oberlin. So my research project looks at how social movements such as Black Lives Matter and Me Too transform the film industry uh, Mm. within the United States, so AKA Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Um, And by transform, really it's looking at the different impacts that those movements are having both within films themselves, references to the movements, um, and then also within the industry in terms of casting of actors, directors, writers, and hiring more women, people of color, black folks within positions within the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my research sort of asks, to what degree um, are these sort of social movements having a genuine impact on the industry? Um, and so what degree are those movements sort of being um exploited um and commodified Uh, so is diversity sort of a commodity that's being sold to the public because it's profitable and not really um an industry-wide transformation that's happening
0: yeah i that is i think i think this kind of perspective is definitely needed because um i mean i don't know i don't know what you saw when you know folks were posting the black squares on instagram but there's there's this lack of like true attention to detail when it comes to caring about like the representation of black people um in media i feel like and you can definitely see that in terms of you know when there's a resurgence of black lives matter what we're currently going through and this kind of like Just very, um... I don't know what what you would say. Uh, It's just very, like... I don't even... I can't think of a word for it. It's just, like, lazy activism. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think... Yeah, I think... I think your work is... Will be really cool to just see what you find and see... How the industry can like make this kind of work, uh, more genuine, or make the make the products that they're producing out of these movements more genuine, yeah.
1: Thank you, thank you, absolutely. And, you know, that's the goal is to really, you know, uh, create scholarship for you know everyone to learn from. Uh, But also to hold, you know, my colleagues and peers accountable um, for the ways in which this field and this industry upholds those racial and gender hierarchies. And, you know, and it is very possible to deconstruct those.
0: Yeah. And you said, um, so what was the research project you did um, in undergrad?
1: Yes, so the um, other research project that I did uh, was for my senior thesis, um, you know, exiting Oberlin College. So that was also developed, you know, or I began working on that two years ago, um, and that was looking at the ways in which Black men have resisted what I called white heteronormative predators from the time of slavery um, to the um, mid to late 20th century
0: Mm -hmm.
1: um so that uh sort of started because um well really honestly i sort of felt as a black gay man um you know isolated you know in general socially um but being on a predominantly white campus um in oberlin ohio uh and then being within this academic institution i majored in cinema which was incredibly white. Oftentimes I was the only black student in the classroom. Uh, And then my other major was Africana studies. right? And while that was such a rich um, experience because there were so many texts and films and everything that we were reading from black scholars, a lot of it was from cisgendered heterosexual black scholars. Mm. And it did reach something that was written by a queer black person Um, then their sexuality was sort of spoken of, or it was mentioned, but we didn't talk about really the depth of how much that played into their political activism and their art.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, So that was true until I took my um, intermediate seminar for the major, uh, to which one of my professors um, who is um, an esteemed scholar in the fields of English and Africana studies. Um, and she teaches literature, Meredith Gatsby. She um, introduced or taught the book, Black Queer Studies, which mm. is an anthology of essays yeah. um, edited by E. Patrick Johnson yeah. and um, May Henderson. Yeah. So, you know, once I started reading that, I was like, wow, like, uh, I didn't even realize that black queer studies was a thing thing, until I was in my second year of college. I didn't know that my experience, my life, and the people like me, I didn't know we were sort of, I guess, worthy of of being studied in an academic institution. And and we can unpack that a little bit. But I was very young when I was having these thoughts. Well, I'm still young, but I was younger when I was having these thoughts. Yeah. Uh, and so that got me very excited, so I started reading more works by E. Patrick Johnson, mm-hmm. and then that led to me reading more of James Baldwin, that led to me um, reading uh, more by Marlon M. Bailey, mm-hmm. um, watching Marlon Riggs' films. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I found was community um, within this, this body of, of literature and, and film and art of people, you know, who are going through things that I'm going through and then, you know, even worse during the HIV and AIDS epidemic of the eighties and
0: nineties. I yeah, I'm I'm so happy that you had this like realization early on. Um I would consider that early on because I didn't find like black queer studies, black feminism until my, my second semester of my, uh, graduate, my PhD, uh, yeah. So, um, and like always black women always come through with the knowledge. So, uh, I had a black woman professor and the class was queer of color critique and performance. And basically it was a black queer studies class, black feminism class, um, just E. Project Johnson was my introduction into like black queer stuff like he was the first black queer scholar I read um and then uh yeah we just we we like Horton Spillers there's um yeah there's just a lot of people that I remember reading in that class and and uh going like oh my God, this is what I need to do. This is the kind of work that I want to bring into cinema studies. Because as you know, cinema studies right now, and I told you this before, cinema studies right now, you talk about camera angles, you talk about lighting. Sometimes you talk about like directors and things like that. But it it's not like, it's, it's very technical language and it's not showing like, how you can actually read film as a way of understanding, like, yourself, the world around you, and I think that's what film does, film and media does at its best, um, so, yeah, I, I I think, I think, I think, I, I'm, I, I guess I'm just, uh, glad that you had this awakening at, um, at, uh, the time that you did, because, um, yeah, now you're able to do the work that you want to do. You know that the work is valid, um, and I think that's something that you know we don't we don't see when we're in departments that are predominantly white. Our work kind of the work that we want to do is sort of like is is not given a, a platform to even exist. So, yeah, I just yeah.
1: Yeah, and, you know, I was doing both of my research projects side by side, um, you know, throughout, throughout the other half of my undergraduate career. Um, And so I actually spent a semester at the Prague Film School in Czech Republic.
0: Ooh, you fancy.
1: (laughs) Fancy. uh, There were only, you know, five black students in the entire program.
0: Huh. Um, I'm shocked that there was that many.
1: There was no black faculty or staff. Um, And so that was, you know, again, so when you say like, you know, the technical language, it's all very focused on the technical and things like that. What was an interesting experience about that was when we got there, off the bat, they said, you know what, we acknowledge that there are more men in this program than there are women. And to sort of combat that, to confront that contingency or that issue, uh, we have a weekend retreat. For the women filmmakers only and they can build community and Mm. that was something that the school facilitated but there was no conversation about race Mm. now i think the conversation about gender was very much necessary because it was very gendered and it was very you know lots of instances of sexism Uh, there was a point in class where i said you know i'm noticing on the film sets the men are you know sort of bombarding the cameras and things like that even when the director is a woman. When the cinematographer is the woman, right? The people on set who are in charge are women. Why is like the the grip, who's a man, you know, mansplaining to her what to do with the film that she wrote and created? Yeah. Um, so that was an issue. But I I thought to myself, I was like, well, I know they looking out into this room of people and they only see five of us. Were they
0: all? Were they? Were there? Was it all black men?
1: It was four black men and one black woman, and she was an actress. Okay. And she was an actress. And so that was some of the things that I noticed And you know, we're having these conversations in the classrooms, and that's sort of, uh, for me, I noticed where the big problems that Time's Up was highlighting with the huge producers and stuff like that really gets um, incubated uh, in the film schools, right? So, and in the classroom. And so it's like a matrix Mm. and you know of where this sort of cis hetero patriarchy is being um within an echo chamber of itself because it's so many just white men and men in general straight men all around each other and so for those of us who exist outside of that identity it can be really um suffocating so you know that was a experience there and then i left prague actually and then the next month after i got back i actually uh interviewed e patrick johnson in um in chicago nice that was making
0: nice for for what again
1: uh that was for a documentary i was making it was called where magnolia's lie it became a part of um my research project on black men's resistance to white heteronormative predators. Uh-huh. Um, and he was just basically dropping gems of knowledge yeah. with me three hours. And he was gracious enough to let me in his home. And so that was really awesome. And I credit a lot of my, that whole research project to E. Patrick Johnson. As,
0: as most things, <laughs> as most things should. Um, most knowledge of, about like black queer stuff. Um, yeah. E. Patrick Johnson is amazing and it's so cool That you got to spend Three hours with him like Yes yes Yeah Alright let's get into some classic shit Alright So you have A song for this segment What is that song and what are Some lyrics that kind of stood Out to you
1: Listen the song that I picked was the Crush On You remix. Uh, that's Lil' Kim uh, and Lil' C's. I love this song. And the lyric that still sticks with me to this day is the first line of her verse when she says, yo, shorty, won't you go get a bag of the lethal? And I, I don't know if I can curse on your podcast. Yeah, you so can. You can. You okay. can. So when I heard that, I was like, this is a bad bitch. Yeah. <laughs> Like, because this is a woman that's talking to, you know, talking to a man and saying, Ayo, shorty.
0: Shorty, yeah.
1: And I was just like, that energy, that energy. She's so New York and she's so raw. I I love Lil' Kim. I love Lil' Kim. Uh so that that line right there, when she said that, I was like, bow down to the queen. (laughs) Black
0: okay i'm gonna i'm gonna be messy for a little bit what do you think about the lil kim and Nicki minaj sort of i guess divide i don't know if it's a beef anymore yeah
1: i had a feeling you was gonna ask (laughs) why not (laughs) so here's here's my thoughts on that um you know uh let let artists be artists i think a lot of that was really facilitated by men in the industry who know that when women have disagreements that it becomes profitable uh and you have people around them where that became profitable and it's unfortunate you know we see there's a lot more sort of um being cordial and, and nice and friendlier with the newer generation of women rappers uh but you know for a long time it was that The the one woman and she reigns supreme and then someone else rises up, you know, from right before Nick Minaj was Trina. Um, And so it was it was really unfortunate to see because both of them are extremely talented. Yes. Um, And I don't like, you know, I don't I personally don't like, you know, pitting them against each other although it can be very entertaining and be like oh it's shady yeah it's really when you look deeper into it a little bit unfortunate and i i bump Vicki minaj i bump cardi b i listen to low chem eve trina queen latifah megan the stallion and we don't do doja cat no more but
0: um <laughs> oh oh <laughs> I, st- I still i still i still uh play doja i still play her <laughs>
1: Yeah, you know, I'm like, you know, I was like, there's 200 men in this industry who who look the same, sound the same, yeah. who don't really, uh, very few of them stand out. And you have all of these incredibly talented women, black women, yes. Who, yes, who are geniuses at their craft. And we don't really appreciate that that much because we're firstly concerned with if they're fighting and stuff like that. And that's trivial. They're artists and they're talented.
0: Yeah, I, yeah, that was... That wasn't the answer I thought I was going to get, but that was the answer I needed. Um, <laughs> I just, so I got to check this out from Lil' Kim. I started listening to her first album. Uh, I forget what the song is called, but she says, like, I used to be, I used to be, when I was younger, I used to be scared of the dick. And I forgot what the, let me look up the lyrics, but I I was just I, like.
1: Was that uh, Big Mama?
0: I think it was. Let's see. I used to be scared of the dick, and now I throw. Yeah. Lips to the
1: dick, right.
0: Yeah. Used. To, she. Now I throw what? Yeah, big mama thing. I used to be scared of the dick. Now I throw lips to the shit. I was like, when I heard that, I was like, oh, this. <laughs> I used. I was like, I definitely used to be scared of the dick, <laughs> and now I throw. But like that's I I don't know I was just like I'm I'm so happy that this is someone I can like I can, I identified with that you know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, little Kim. <laughs> Thank
1: you, little Kim. She she raised an entire generation of us.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> to throw it back, yeah. <laughs> All right, and that has been some classic shit. We have. Uh we have a few topics on the docket for this episode. Um so let's just knock them down one by one. So the film academy has inducted new members. Um some of them include I know I saw Zendaya was on here, Mm -hmm. um Constance Wu, Cynthia Revo, Nishi Nash, uh -hmm. who else? I was I was like, "Ooh, Eva Longoria." That I, that was kind of shocking to me. Um, Brian Terry Henry. Um, yeah, yeah. What what are your kind of thoughts on on these new inductees? I'm just looking at the actors that were inducted, mm-hmm. though.
1: So uh, when this one when this was released, you know, this was just announced not too long ago. Um, I I sort of chuckled a little bit. Okay. Um, Because this whole, well, the Academy Awards of Arts and Sciences um, is the organization, right? And the Oscars is the award show that that we all know um, and and many people love. Uh, So this is actually directly related to my research. So, you know, remember I was saying earlier, I was saying about how Black Lives Matter sort of um, transforms Hollywood and things like that. So in my research, I sort of tracked, from about 2012, the early 2010s, um, looking at um, how the rise of Black Lives Matter due to this unjust killings of um, black people, such as Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland, uh, and all of these names, so many names, there are too many to hold in our mouth at one time, Yeah. Um, the rise of that movement gave way and inspired the movement Oscar So White. So there's sort of a timeline that I construct. Uh, so April Rain, who coined the term Oscar So White in her tweet in 2015, uh, you know, tweeted that after a list of acting nominees, all of the acting nominees for that year were white. Yep. So April Rain had tweeted, um, hashtag Oscar So White, they asked to touch my hair, you know, to... Make a joke, um, but also to sort of point out the um, the racial um, implications of of that decision. Um, and so that was in 2015, and it was a viral tweet. Um, it went viral again in 2016 when they did the same thing. A year later, they announced um, the acting uh, nominees, best actors, and they were all white. Um, And then films like Straight Outta Compton, um, you know, only received awards for the writers um, who were white. And, you know, if you remember Straight Outta Compton, that film was a big deal when it came out. Yeah. So since that went viral in 2016 and you had celebrities like Spike Lee, Will and Jada Pinkett Smith saying that they were going to boycott. Um, The Oscars. Yeah,
0: I remember that. And it
1: sort of became, you know, it grew into this huge thing. The Academy Awards of Arts and Sciences had said that they were going to be committed to um, having like half of the committee or half of the uh, members of the Academy be um, women and basically people of color. Yeah. Um, And they were supposed to do that by 2020. So that's sort of when this list came out. That was that initiative that was sort of um you know began in 2016 that they were going to say they were going to do now from 2016 to 2020 there hasn't been, been that much a whole lot of progress yeah. that happened at the academy awards you know yeah. we still don't have a director who is black that has won in the category of best directing um i think i could be wrong I think Halle Berry is still the The only first and only black person to win in the black actress category. Yep.
0: Yep.
1: And so their hope is that when we bring in these diverse members, then that'll diversify sort of um, the opinions and criticisms of these films. Not everything is being viewed through a white male gaze. Now, the thing about it is, is that now they bring in all of these new um, women, you know, as they say, women and underrepresented ethnic slash racial communities, um, that's what's on their website. They bring them in, but they're also still increasing the number of white men who get added uh, to the category. So it's like...
0: It's not... There
1: are more, yeah. but you're sort of doing the same thing. Yeah,
0: you know what I mean? it's like I It's like the the underrepresented folks are growing but it's the the growth is not like it's never gonna be equal the growth is not like though if they're still increasing the white male members of the academy there's no like growth i don't <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't compute
1: <laughs> right yeah right um so it's it's, it's really interesting, their approach to this, but, you know, it's, it's again, sort of begging that question, is this happening because you value the voices of black people, of people of color, of women, um, of people who are from countries not in Europe in the United States? Do you value these voices? Or is it, you know, now profitable to say, hey, look how diverse yeah. now we have this academy? Is it a way to get these communities to be tuned in and watching the Academy Awards and, and giving their views to this channel every year, um, which is really, a lot of people feel that it's this really archaic ceremony that's not very interesting and people are, are losing interest. It so was so
0: bad this year. It was so bad. It was so boring this year. Did you watch?
1: I, I did not watch, to you, be truthful, because- You didn't miss anything. And my research is just sort of like, you know, if you've seen one Academy Awards, you, you've pretty much seen all of them. Um, but, you know, hopefully... You know, but this is also not to be saying that this isn't progress. This yeah. is absolutely progress. Yes. Steps are being made. It's just, we have to always hold them accountable. So it's like, you know, yes, we got this, and we're still asking for more.
0: More, yeah. I don't... so. I guess going on with just this timeline that you laid out and just um what's <laughs> I didn't know that they were still increasing the number of white male members. So do you think they'll ever reach a point where they'll stop that? No. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but what do you think that would look like if the the Academy stopped increasing the number of white men that were Academy members? Do you like? Yeah,
1: I think I think the the Academy is is pushed up against the same wall that the film industry that the studios are pushed up against. Mm. Mm-hmm. Society is progressing in a way, although it doesn't feel like it, and a lot is happening. But it's progressing in a way where um, these social movements really do create a demand, right? And we have to remember the academy, the film industry, that's a business,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: right? Um, And you want to cater to that demand. And Hollywood has catered to those kind of demands in the past. For example, in the early 20th century, um, the Catholic Church had said that Hollywood was a fortress of filth. Um, because of uh, sort of obscene movies that would get released. And so as a response to that, um, that was during the Great Depression, um, and the Catholic Church had threatened to boycott films that came out of Hollywood, and they encouraged religious people in the United States and around the world to boycott those movies as well, if you wanted to be sort of uh, spiritually virtuous and, and maintain that. So during the Great Depression, you know, that was, you know, They couldn't afford to handle a boycott of any kind. Um, So what they did in response then was created the motion production uh, Uh, code, the the Hayes Code. Yeah, yeah. Which was a set of bylaws that stated, you know, there will be, um, you know, no pornographic images of children, you know, displayed on screen. Um, no miscegenation, yeah. which is no interracial relationships and couples and things like that. They did all of these things um, in their minds that assaged this sort of, um, this sin or or this, this deviance that they were being called out on. So it's definitely possible they respond to these movements. Now, the issue with this demand is that Black Lives Matter, Time's Up, Me Too, Oscar So White, is that they require that these industries deconstruct their race and gender hierarchies, um, and and that's what is what people want to see. So then you have sort of Hollywood in this interesting contention where people are like, you know what, we're tired of white men being at the center of narratives. We're tired of white men being the epicenter of power in this industry, right? When you're telling that. So the white men and they're like i hear you right mm. <laughs> uh, but you know they're still going to be interested in themselves first so my research can, you know looks at that contention how are they trying to maintain these hierarchies but also respond to a demand where people will boycott films um, or or say like, you know what? This studio's not doing it for me. I'm going to go on Netflix because Netflix has more options. Mm. Netflix knows what we want and, and things like that. And so that's the competition now. Um, so I do think at a point it can get to, you know, we can get to a place where white men aren't the, the overwhelming power in the industry, but it's going to be a long and hard battle for that. But it is happening, and it can still happen. You just need to keep pushing and get the right people in the right places, Um, and people just have to start being unafraid to really voice those opinions. And I think we see a rise of that happening with actors and directors of color and women in Hollywood. And I think a lot of that, most of that, is due to um, the social movements that have gained such traction and really taken off on social media.
0: Yeah. So do you do you think that in order for I guess what would a what would a future in which women and people of color have majority in the academy, what would that future look like and what would it take for that to happen in your opinion?
1: Um that's a great question. So in order in terms of what would it take for that to happen, um I think first and foremost uh women, people of color, black people have to first occupy those positions of power. And hmm. really um start getting a foothold. And that's beginning to happen. You see uh, Tyler Perry is an interesting case study, but Tyler Perry is <laughs> the first black man to own a film studio.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, wigs right? and all.
1: So that comes with uh, a level of power. Yeah. because um, Now you have this, this black man um, who's, who's making the decisions, who's, who, who's making some decisions, some quite interesting ones, but making the decisions <laughs> uh, of who gets hired and, and things like that. Um, and then on the other you know, end of it, you, you have this really interesting thing going on with Beyoncé. Now, I don't want to get too into the rabbit hole of Beyoncé, because mm-hmm. I could talk about her and her career for a very long time. Um, That'll but, be for next time. <laughs> <laughs> but you have, you have Beyoncé, who's, um, who's really the, the, the trifecta of all things. She has power she has influence, she has wealth, she is black, right? And because of that, uh, she is is a force across industries, music, fashion, film. Um, And so you have Disney, who's given her such a huge creative control, um, you know, working with her, because she's Beyonce, uh, because people know, the, the power of that name and having her name associated with it, just associated with that, um, will bring in so much revenue, right? That happened with her Vogue shoot. Yeah, She brought on the black photographer. She brought on an up and coming black photographer and credited that photographer um, and, and, you know, made that known that this was the first black photographer to shoot for Vogue um she's doing it with adidas she has a lifetime partnership with adidas right she has the creative control over what the merchandise is and things like that because people are simply going to spend their money on it if her name is on it and her being pro-black her marketing herself as pro-black that's significant
0: yeah yeah there's a lot there's a lot within the you clarifying her marketing herself as black there's a lot within that that um i'll i'll have to definitely bring you on next uh, for another episode (laughs) um because yeah and then let
1: me let me just clarify what i mean by that really really quickly because i don't want to get
0: dragged okay yes yes please so i i am not saying beyonce suddenly chose to be black yeah what i believe yeah.
1: I, I firmly believe, because I actually designed a whole, um, a whole coursework on, on Beyonce's career my, right before I left undergrad. Um, what I'm saying is uh, she has always been black. That's evident in her entire career, her entire 20-plus year career. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is she's, she's marking herself as pro-black, pro-black. Okay, Meaning that she has always been a black woman. She has always been vocal and identified as a black woman. But now she's marketing herself and she's as a as a piece of a larger global black community. Yeah. um, And speaking very vocally on black issues and being unapologetic about that and coming forth to those brands like Disney, like Adidas, who would you would think will be a little bit more hesitant to approach issues such as race like that? um saying that i'm beyonce and this is what i'm coming with um and you're going to let me do this and i'm going to talk about these injustices i'm going to talk about how i'm marketing to uh, a black demographic and i'm going to uplift my community Mm. where not every black celebrity does that yeah so that's why she's marking herself as pro-black that's not to insinuate that it's disingenuous i think it's fantastic and that it's wonderful yeah uh but you know her saying that this is my brand right to create a visual album for disney where you uh first of all bring on um, artists from the continent uh who are black and they produce songs for a lot of which an american audience or a large part of an american audience hasn't heard of before yeah right that's what i'm saying she's marked stuff as pro-black it's very significant and important what she's doing
0: yeah yeah definitely thank you for that clarification um yeah so i guess let's go on to the uh next topic that you wanted to discuss which was pose um poses emmy campaign which i think is definitely like i was thinking that these kind of like topics that we were going to discuss weren't gonna like be related to each other but I'm kind of seeing the through line now. <laughs> um yeah, so let's let's talk pose. Um what what kind of uh I guess what brought this to your like mind? What what about this do you want to talk about?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm so glad you're seeing the through line. <laughs> <laughs> um so what caught my attention about that is You know, the Emmy nominations are going to be announced. I I think that says the end of this month, like July 25th, 28th or something like that. Yeah. Um, And so what you have is actors um, from Pose like India Moore, uh, MJ Rodriguez, Dominique Jackson, um, who are really tweeting um, not just, hey, consider us for Emmy nomination, but we are a show that centers the experiences of black trans women of black queer people in a way that no other show on television is doing yep so to not nominate us to not consider us an impactful and well-crafted artistic project mm-hmm. um is is really a, um an injustice to these communities and to the work that our black and queer and trans crew and directors and writers as well. That, you know, it's great that Billy Porter is getting this praise and, and is, you know, has gotten lots of celebration for being a fashion forward black gay man, right? But keep that energy for the black trans woman on that show. Yeah. Who those experiences that they are rooted in yep. um, and so there are tweets that I see you know I, I want to talk about it because one it, it shouldn't have to be that way but in a similar sense that what April Rain started with Oscar So White um, is that you know people are being shut out Yeah. Um, and blatantly right and the television academy is, is a is a whole other thing you know there's the film Academy there's the the Academy Awards and all of that but the television the Emmys represent the television Academy um, and when you don't even consider them or you don't nominate them um, for being an extremely popular show that's well followed and has already been renewed for another season um, then it's telling what you think about that show as an as a body of, um, of uh, of people in that Academy. Now the nominations haven't come out yet. Um, but the fact that this cast and crew had to say, please see us is, is a problem within itself.
0: Yeah. I, I think this is somewhat related to what we were talking about with the, um, film Academy. um, I don't. I don't know much about the Television Academy members, but I'm assuming that the same situation is going on, where it's mostly cis straight white men who are uh, voters, and yeah, I guess. I guess, and on a larger, I guess scale, um, no, just particular to the industry. But I think it's still related to um, just the kind of social, cultural things that are going on. Um, black queer and black trans people get erased often in these kind of like narratives about blackness. Um, and yeah, I I, I guess, well, that seems to be the same thing that's happening with Pose. Um, it's just that, you know... The black, the black gay man gets honored, uh, by the academy, but the black trans folks who um are the heart of the show, um, d- don't get any recognition, and it's just so interesting because you know, um, with Orange Is the New Black, and uh, why am I blanking on her name? Uh, yes, with Laverne Cox being nominated for uh best supporting actress for uh a few years. Well, get she was guest and then supporting, I believe, um for a few years, and then like you know we have this show with black trans folks on it, and you would think that you know the the support would still be there, but it's just yeah, it's just interesting.
1: Yeah, these these awards—the the Television Academy, the Film Academy, the Music, the Recording Academy—are um, are again, like I'm saying, contending with trying to maintain like yeah. right, these hierarchies, um, and 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 trying to walk a very fine line. Um, but with because um, if you think about the Emmy, it was five years ago. No, not five. No, yes, five. Okay. I have to make sure I was doing the math right in 2015 um, Viola Davis was the first black woman to, to win, receive yeah, an Emmy for an actress. actress in a leading role yep. for how to get away with murder Right, that was only 5 years ago yep. um, same sex marriage in the United States was legalized only 5 years ago
0: yep.
1: um, so sometimes I feel like you know, we there have been these sort of moments of progress that are way, way overdue, um, and sometimes it feels like so much in the world happens that it feels like it was such a long time ago, and that, you know, queerness, trans identity, blackness are things that are accepted in society and and we're a progressive society, but really it's there's there's layers to it, right? So. Um, Yes, you sort of have these these actors like Billy Porter um who are being considered and awarded and celebrated and yay, but the trans women have to be like and us too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, you
1: you can't just celebrate one part of this community. Right? You can't just say, "Oh, yes, was gave us Billy Porter." You know?
0: Yeah. And so there's it's,
1: it's it's backhanded yeah and it's you know it's a disrespectful really to to those actors who are incredibly talented um and also carry so much of that show on their shoulders and you know because in the past they were left out and now they're saying hey this time around can you please you know consider us um and not just because and i also want to bring this up because some people say "Well." we should do away with the Academy Awards and the Emmys and things like that because we yeah, don't to white this. validation. Yeah.
0: yeah, I was going to ask a question similar to that. Yo, go on.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. and, and so, while I think philosophically, that's correct. We don't need white validation. However, in this industry, yeah. when those awards aren't just like, hey, you did a nice job, those awards mean more jobs or they're supposed to mean more jobs, yeah. higher pay, And things like that. So when you don't get nominated, when you don't get considered, it's sort of saying like, amongst this body of peers, you're not talented enough. And because of that, we're not going to pay you more. And the amount of roles that you're going to have are going to be more limited than these people over here. Hmm. So, you know, you don't get the nomination and you don't get the awards, right? It's kind of, it gets tricky to ask for more money. Yeah, you know, and and uh, actors like Viola Davis, Gabrielle Union um, have all been very vocal about, you know, having to take whatever was on the table, because if they didn't take, take that, then they wouldn't work at all. And so the goal is we should always be vigilant and supporting these actors at all times um, so that they're not in a position of just taking whatever's handed to them, that they like their white counterparts can have options in what roles they take, um, can negotiate their pay and be taken seriously and be paid what they're worth.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, I agree with everything (laughs) that you just said. Um, And I'm also curious um, in your, in your kind of like knowledge with, of the film Academy and the television Academy, do you know anything about, like, what were the reasons for these award shows to, or one, for the Academy to be formed, and then second, what were the reasons for the televised, like, award shows, if you know anything about that?
1: So the Film Academy, the, you know, Academy of Motion, my goodness, I always butcher the name. Isn't it like Ocean Motion, Secret Arts, and science? Yeah, yeah. Um, that was formed pre-1920. I think the first ceremony was in 1919. Um, and there's an interesting history to that because I, I believe that there were actors who wanted to unionize and wanted to get paid more money and things like that. Um, and so some of the... I'm a little hazy on this history, but basically what it was, was, hey, we're going to give you some nice, fancy awards to make you feel good. Don't unionize. (laughs) So instead of giving you more money, we're going to give you recognition and we're going to make this a really big deal and a really big thing. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: Now, of course, eventually actors unionized and and so did like writers, uh, cinematographers. uh, And there are several kinds of unions in place in. Uh, associated with Hollywood because it became a really super um, exploitive um, industry. I mean, it still is, but it was way worse back then without the unions. So that's sort of how the Film Academy developed. Um, and then, you know, when, once you start this thing of prestige, when you start this thing of who's the top of their field, who's the best artist, who creates the best thing, well, then people are like, well, if I'm the best, then pay me the best rates. Right. And then that's how you get this, um, that's how you get to where we are now, where these awards are not just about respect and commemoration amongst your colleagues and peers, but it's also about what you bring to the table in the negotiation realm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You
1: know, um, and then I think even now it, that's even gotten harder because now studios, um, are saying, you know, we really don't care if you have an Oscar and Karen War, Like, all that's great, but how have your past movies performed? Like, if your last three movies didn't gross a certain amount of money, mm. we're not going to pay you this amount of money.
0: Wow. So, so it's easy getting you... to a
1: point where the more the more prestigious people are, are having to still fight with these major studios yeah. to get certain amounts
0: of money. I think of like Octavia Spencer. Um I, I I feel like she's had some I feel like I've heard her talk about like some some struggles like finding work even though she has an Oscar. Mhm. Yeah. Okay. Um that was great like hearing a l- like some history. <laughs> um okay, and now Let's talk about <laughs> this movie that um, I had you watch. <laughs> um, sure. Coffee and Cream that's on Netflix. It just came out. It has Ed Helm. And I watched it because I thought Taraji P. Henson was going to be more present in it, but she wasn't. Um, and I don't know the little boy who played Cream. Let me see. Coffee and Cream. Um, yeah, just, what are your kind of, like, first takeaways from this film? Like, what were some of your reactions during watching it and, like, after?
1: Okay, so, I I took notes, um, and the, uh, the young boy's name is Terrence Little-Gardenheim. Okay. Uh, Korean. So the first thing I noticed, okay, coffee and cream, right. This is before I even clicked on the movie. Um, and, and I, I hope your, um, your listeners will appreciate this little cinematic analysis.
0: Yes. (laughs) Uh,
1: So right off the bat, um, the title of film is a play on the sort of quote unquote, cutesy nickname for interracial couples, right? Coffee and cream, the black coffee, white cream. Interracial mixed um, um, thing that sort of is um, a, a cliche, honestly. Yeah. Um, that's before I even watched anything. I just noted that, right, just with what I seen in the trailer and things like that. Um, and then as it got further into it, you know, because at first I thought it was going to be the cop into Raji. Yeah,
0: that's what I was one. Want- that's what I was hoping for, honestly. But yeah. And it ended up being the
1: cop who, who's played by Ed Helms, who's who's an alumni of Oberlin College. Oh. Hmm. Uh, and he used to be in the same improv troupe that I was in. Oh. oh fun fact.
0: Nice.
1: Uh, or... But anyhow, that's all the shout out and recognition he'll get from me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was it was about his character and um, Garden High's character, Kareem.
0: Yeah, and it was it was strange. Yes, yes. Yeah, because we start off in the the
1: opening scene. Um, you have the coffee character. What was it? his name? Was James Coffee?
0: Something like that. Yeah, I think it was some- James Coffee. Yeah,
1: it's Ed Helms' character. Yes, yeah, James Coffee. James, Co- yeah. And it's a cop. He's entering the house. You know, he's saying, "Is anybody there? Is anybody there?" And then he walks up the stairs, and then Taraji sort of comes, you know, out the other room, and then we understand that this is a role play kind of thing that they're a couple. Um, And I thought, hmm. So off bat, we're starting off this film with sort of the sexualization of um, like police sanctioned violence, really, you have Mm -hmm. the uniform entering unwarranted. Uh, or at least in this fantasy that they've created, yeah. entering unwarranted um, and and really having his way with the black woman who's living there. Yeah. So that, off that, you know, unsettled me. Yes. Um, and then, you know, once it's like, okay, they're a couple, and then he thinks that Kareem is in the house, uh, and then they start talking about the son, I noted this line, he said, uh, Ed Helms' character said, first day I met him, he stares me down like like it was day one in the prison yard. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, so we haven't seen this young boy yet, right? And then the line after that, Taraji says, well, he's 12. So we haven't seen this 12-year-old black boy yet. But what we know about him um, is that he is, you know, uh, criminal-like, really, he gets... Likened to an inmate in a prison, and not only an inmate, but one who is scary and intimidating and threatening, right? Coming from a grown ass man who's a cop and, saying about this 12 year old black
0: boy, yeah. And just there, I just all of the lines between Ed Helm and uh, well, all the lines between Coffee and Kareem were uh, highly sexualized, which was very weird considering this is a grown man and a 12 year old boy but especially with that line the the he's he's being portrayed as this threatening black man and it's like still this kind of like it's still a sexualized image even though at least for me even though there's like fear behind it um yeah so yeah you keep going on. Um.
1: <laughs> you are absolutely right, um, and and this is what I was noting from this film is that it was it's an incredibly sexualized, yep. homoeroticized film. Yep. Um, because you have this this twelve year old kid who who is obscene and vulgar, yep. and 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 is forthright with what speaking what is on his mind. And what's on his mind, like he's, you know, he's saying he wants to be a rapper, you know, which is fine. Little black boys want to be rappers, but there's no really no complex depth to his, his character. It's just this little black boy who stereotypically wants to be a rapper and is presenting um, this sort of grown and gangster like image. Uh, and then he gets in a classroom and he starts, you know, reciting a poem, sexualizing his uh, teacher uh, and then, and you know, and then the vulg like there are so many vulgarities coming out of his mouth about threatening dog, saying that he's going to accuse them of sexually assaulting him, yep. and things like that. It's just making this little twelve year old boy super, super, super sexualized in a very disturbing way. Yes, um, yes. And then it's I guess it's supposed to be. Or it's supposed to be received as Funny. being this banter, right? Yeah. Oh, little kids talking about sex is a is a comedy shtick, right? Yeah. Um, but this was different. Um, this wasn't like Good Seth bo- Rogen's film
0: with the three boys. Good boys.
1: Like, right? They're being obscene as well, but they're but w- with them. It's more like, hey, what's porn? Let's like look it up on a laptop. Yeah. Oh my god! I didn't know that's what porn
0: was. It was more innocent there, yeah.
1: Yeah, whereas, like, Kareem is super, super aware of, of eroticism and sex and sexualization to the point where he even projects that onto his mother. Say that again? He's he's such a highly eroticized character who's hyper aware of sex and all things sexual. Yeah. To the point where that becomes that becomes the root of his relationship with his mother. Yes. Yes. Uh, so he's like the and the the conflict between James Coffee, Ed Helms's character, and Kareem Terrence Gardenhigh's character. Um, is that Kareem's? Like you know, he literally says at one point, "If you want to hit that in reference to his mom, you need my permission."
0: Which, yeah, yeah, I and, yeah.
1: And I was like, ooh,
0: it, it, it. Freudian doesn't cut it. <laughs> like saying <laughs> saying that it's Freudian just doesn't cut it. There, there's something particular in just the direction, the writing, how this black boy is claiming ownership over a black, a grown black female person. And I, I know this is a comedy, but that's, that just was not funny. None of this was funny to me. Um, because these kind of like portrayals of black children I don't think I don't like saying that it has a negative impact on uh, how black little black boys are supposed to uh, act. I think that is is there. But I think for a lot of the viewers, I think a lot of people are seeing this movie for Ed Helm. And so if I'm to guess, I think a lot of white folks have watched this movie and just seeing like I don't know, just seeing how he acts to the mother, um, I I just yeah, I don't agree with it, and I think it's just very um destructive, really.
1: It is, it is and it, and it particularly caught my interest because in my senior thesis for Oblin the Black men's resistance to white heteronormative predators. One of the points that I make in that paper is that. Um, that the erasure of homoeroticized violence um, perpetuated by white men onto black men mm-hmm. in the context of the plantation, yes. the erasure of that sexualized violence benefits both white men and black men, yes. and specifically heterosexual black men. yeah. And without getting too much into the details of it, I make that point to say is that what that erasure does? Is it presents white men, um, or it leaves white men in a history where they aren't sodomizers, right? Where although they did all of these horrible, awful things, right, they didn't engage in in sexual um, contact with other men because that was going directly against the um, the sort of virtual or virtuous um, proclamations that they set in stuff. That they set in place for themselves, mm-hmm. um, and then in the context of, of of black men, it sort of positions black men as you know by having black women be in the context of this teleology and history of how we understand slavery and the sexual politics of slavery by making black women the sole bearers of sexual violence on plantations. Yep what it does then is creates a narrative that black men had to be the heroes and protectors and saviors of those black women Yep. and that's a that's a trope that's been told time and time again in different films it's in 12 years a slave it's in mm. the 2016 version of birth of a nation django Unchained. yep the story of the strong heroic black man who endures so much and it, and, and, and You know, uh, achieves great feats to save the helpless black damsel is is sort of the undertone uh, that sort of gets twisted here in this film in a very weird way.
0: And it's interesting that you that those two movies that you called out were uh, slave narratives, I guess. Um, I don't I don't know if they would be considered neo. Anyway, they were movies where black people were slaves, and I think you know it's interesting that we are seeing this kind of dynamic in a movie where it's not on the plantation; it's it's just around police officers. So, I I mean I see there's a direct connection there. Um yeah
1: absolutely absolutely because well as we know police officers the concept of police officers really is an evolved or or another shape of of slave patrols yeah so it's that same surveillance and that's the connection is the surveillance and the sexualization that that is you know very reminiscent of slavery yeah um and then you again you have this this erotically charged exchanges between this 12-year-old boy who, who throughout the entire film is presented as a grown man and yes. what we understand will be grown things um, and sort of in his own way saving his mother or protecting his mother from that white male figure right like you and and what what does that mean? That that empowers him as a as a black boy who's you know evoking a grown black heterosexual sort of man mentality.
0: And on on this point, um, some of the kind of like sexual banter between him and Ed Helms were it was always about like anal sex, mm-hmm. oral like oral sex and most of the jokes were just um just about gay sex in general either like make the the kid making Ed Helms uncomfortable with those jokes or um Ed Helms trying to make the jokes back and then it being like weird but it was already weird um i find that him employing like that kind of language in protection of his mother to be really interesting because it's like what, like, what's going on with that? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm just very, I'm just very confused at the choices and the, like, language in this film. Um, what else did you have in your notes?
1: Let me peruse them really quickly. Um, well, yeah, and this Some of this, like you know, hyper sexuality comes up again when Orlando is in the chair, uh, and they have you remember they have him tied up in the chair, and they're like trying to. Then they got the phone away from him. Yeah. Uh, So when he's tied up in the chair, uh, Coffee says to him, uh, "Oh no, no, no. I remember now. Okay, so what happens is Orlando who." plays to give context with people listening orlando who plays um a, a drug he wasn't like a he wasn't a dealer so no he wasn't the supplier he was the dealer right
0: yeah i think so he
1: was in he was in drug trafficking um and he you know basically is running away from the police and it gets really messy and then you know james coffee gets blamed for the thing this is for the context for people who will be listening Um, the plot really doesn't matter because it's not that good. (laughs) Um, Yep. you know, just trying to explain why Orlando the drug trafficker is tied up in a chair and Kareem, they go back and forth. So Kareem, you know, they do the whole yo mama jokes and then, you know, going back and forth and then they start getting into some of the, like, the the homophobic banter of the, like, you know, that we see straight black men do time to time as insult and to sort of attack each other's masculinity and to emasculate one another, you know, suck my dick and blah, 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 blah. blah. And then James coffee steps in and says like, Oh, well, what if I actually did suck your dick? You know, like that eroticization in Orlando gets like super uncomfortable.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, that's another instance again, where, where I felt like that sort of homoeroticism, homophobic, Eroticism um, is is referencing two things: that one, how black men who want to insult each other, call each other gay, and attack each other's masculinity. Um, but then again, how this um, this authoritative figure, like a police officer, um, is is again like just sort of desiring these black men Yo. and boys in a very weird. Black- Black people, this comedy.
0: yeah, black people too. Because you know, the with the opening scene of the the uh, we're gonna just we're just gonna call it race play of the race play going on with him and Taraji. Like this is his relation. He the Ed Hems James Coffee had nothing but a sexual relationship to the black people in that film. Um, yeah, it's it's just super interesting and um what what i kind of took away from the movie i was really interested every time we have this kind of like black man white man black woman i'm always interested to to focus straight on how the the white woman is portrayed in this and so uh betty what's her name Betty Betty Gilpin, who she plays uh, Liberty Bell in Glow, and she plays this kind of like bad, like this badass female detective who can like throw back the kind of like homophobic banter and things like that. And then she turns out to be this crooked cop. Um, But for all of the movies, she's kind of like heralded as this like, really badass cop, and I just really find it interesting that white womanhood is portrayed in that way, considering that Taraji P. Henson is... She's she's basically non-existent through the whole film. You have this homoerotic stuff going on between uh, Coffee and Kareem, and then you have this white woman who is kind of, like, wreaking havoc on everyone. Um mm-hmm. And I think it's really interesting um, what is kind of like happening with white womanhood in media in general because Betty Betty Gilpin plays Liberty Bell, and then with her character, she kind of plays this like Southern white womanhood. And I've been seeing lately, like um, Dancing with this, like with Dancing with the Stars and The Bachelor. The Bachelor had uh, a white girl from Alabama on this on the bachelor oh she was a bachelor at and she's like they just really played up her southernness. then she was on dancing with the stars with lauren Elena, who's a country uh, artist and they really played up their southern like white womanhood on there and so i'm like what is going on with southern white womanhood at a time when there's this like heavy policing of black bodies um lots of uh um, heavy like lots of black bodies being killed by police and just a lot of racial tension in general. I'm really interested in like the way that white womanhood is portrayed in this kind of like feminist lens, but it's mm-hmm. it's still hella racist.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. So
1: I think because uh, I was you know going through I was reading some reviews for the film before we started speaking. Um, and uh, Nick Allen, who wrote a review for RogerEbert.com, I think he put it really well um, in saying that, the film prods at very real wounds about race and police work in America, and it makes for miserable tryhard comedy that aims to play for both the Blue Lives Matter people mm. and the Black Lives Matter people will confuse everyone yikes that was a direct quote from um nick allen for roger ebert.com and yeah. i absolutely agree with that yeah because um, there are all these things that are that are going on because you're saying like and and what i would add to that is that the film is like going through great lengths and jumping through hoops to sort of make a not all cops point at the end of the day. at the end of the day yeah. So it's saying like, yes, these cops are corrupt and even the cops who are women are corrupt and even the cops who are black are corrupt, but the white man the <laughs> white man he is trying to save not just his girlfriend and his girlfriend's son, but also doubly trying to save this young black boy. You know, at the beginning of the film, or not the beginning, but halfway through the film, um, you know, Orlando says to Kareem, like, you're gonna end up in jail one day, or "Oh, you're gonna, you know, uh, no, he said, he said, if you stay with him, you're gonna end up in jail. And then James Coffey in response says, I won't be the reason he ends up in jail. Right? So he's already sees him as this criminal. Mm. And then there's that scene that happens in the strip club.
0: Oh, I, that is gonna, a blank I'm to me. Do, I'm going to get back to your point about white, uh, femininity, white womanhood, because the portrayals that we see of the black women in the film yes.
1: are the sex workers
0: and the strippers, Yes, uh, who said that she would show her
1: pussy to Kareem for $5, um, Which... who, who begin, who's, were beginning to say, like, you know, he was asking her about herself and she was saying that she was in school and things like that, and I was like, oh, like, what a nice way to just really pause and and yeah, really treat sex workers as like human beings for once. Yeah. But then it was like, oh, well like for $5, I'll show my pussy to the 12 year old boy in a strip club. <laughs> so there was that portrayal of the black woman there. And then of Taraji P Henson's character, who is the single black mom, and mammy figure, who is raising the belligerent and thuggish uh, black boy. And then in her fight scene with the two um, with the two dudes who are working for Orlando, um, you know, she says, "Oh, like I just treated them like they mama should have, you know." So mm. that got into some like mammy tensions for me. Like the onus is on the black woman mm. so to get everybody together, everyone's behavior. Mm. Um, whereas the demonstration or the representation of the white woman. Even though she's a crooked cop, she's seen as this really funny, or presented as this really funny,
0: really badass, uh, breaking the gender roles. Yeah. thing. and uh, sorry, I keep—I feel like I keep cutting you off, but my the ideas just keep like popping up. Um, no, no, go ahead. With her, with her, there's this, so she was in this movie called The Hunt, which I thought was good. She played another kind of badass character. And she was a, she had this really rural Southern accent the whole time. And she, she like, she did a lot of stunt work in it. And she was like, I think she did really, really good in it. But I feel like with her, there's this sort of like, I don't know what's happening with her, but they're trying to make her into this kind of like, that ba- like she's she's starting to get casted in these like badass white woman roles that are like predicated upon like the erasure of a black womanhood and like the erasure of black womanhood is needed for her to appear strong, which I find to be really interesting with with just the haunt and then this movie. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was, it, it was so much, it was, it was such an interesting character because it's like, okay, she's a crooked cop. And even before we learned that she's like loud and, and boisterous and is refusing to apologize to men, really a white, a white feminist portrayal <laughs> <Refusing> <laughs> to apologize to men. And right. That's very attractive, I think, to white feminists. Um, and she's like, cool. She has a few like funny ha ha lines here and there and you know and and is giving a performance but at the same time she shoots her black partner in the head yep um and then she's trying to execute kareem um she's uh and you know and she orders taraji to be kidnapped uh the character taraji plays to be kidnapped and so meanwhile, you have this super like, oh, against like the rigid femininity portrayals, traditional portrayals of women, white women in film. She's this badass kooky character, whereas Taraji's character, again, is invisible for a lot of the film. And then when she is visible, she's um, she's enduring some kind of abuse, yep. being tased, um, being attacked by two black men. She's rectifying people's behaviors. um, or, or you know, she's being sexualized. Yeah. So she doesn't get the same, like, you know, fuck all this. The burden of, of correcting everybody, of getting everybody back on their moral compass is on her. Because at the end of the film, she goes on her monologue about, you know, with Orlando, James, and Kareem saying, like, oh, y'all are talking about who has the biggest dick and blah, blah, blah. You're all just really sensitive and soft, and it's okay to be sensitive and soft, and you know, and she has them basically admit that they're all sensitive and then they'll work together to try and get out of there. Hmm. So that is a, a very interesting juxtaposition, which isn't surprising, but always interesting to see yep. between white women and black women in the film.
0: Yeah. And it's just Going on, I think this relates back to what we were kind of saying earlier. Where, where you were kind of like spl- explaining earlier with some when when act when black actors get it's it's getting to a point to where the industry is saying, well, how much did your movie make, and not necessarily the accolades because Taraji P Henson has a Golden Globe for Empire. She was she was uh praise for empire she's i think she's been in some uh what films has she no well yeah she has an oscar nomination for um curious case of benjamin button and she's been in a few movies um and you know she t- was in this movie and she's barely in it and the the way that her character is is just it, it doesn't showcase her her best acting um yeah and i just think it's interesting that this is the kind of work that she's more or so recently having to do um considering that she is s- such a great actress
1: she is and i would say while well, this is this isn't her best piece of work
0: this film though every scene she was in was great stolen. yeah 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 she stole it. She she outperformed
1: everybody in this film, even with the the racial implications, the gendered implications, the minimal screen time. She still was the most interesting character. All that other, you know, everything else aside, she was the most entertaining to watch. She yep. delivered her lines the best, um, and and she made great acting decisions with what she was given. Yeah. This this film, I'm I'm completely just. It was bad directing. It was bad writing. Yep. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm not gonna, you know. And Terrence, no. Uh, yeah, the Garden Heights acting. He's twelve, so you know he'll he'll grow. Um, but he was, he was, you know, performing as well. And Ed Helms was just, yeah. Mm-hmm, eh. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But Taraji to, to is a phenomenal actress. Um, I think she's proven that time and time again and even though she's put in these these roles where she's meant to be a stereotype yeah and, and and as hard as I think the industry may try to typecast her she refuses to be typecasted
0: okay yeah. I think yeah she
1: sits in a very interesting place where she says i can't you know I can't be this role I can be the the loud boisterous hood black woman and I don't have a problem playing that character because Hood black women are full human beings as well.
0: Yeah.
1: And they can be funny and they can be loving and they can be mothers. And I think that's what I appreciate about Taraji's work. She doesn't scoff at those roles. Yeah, Um, yeah. She takes them and she makes them full. And she adds nuance when nuance wasn't put there in the first place. Yeah. And then she flips the script and she says, and I can also do hidden figures with Janelle Monáe and Octavia Spencer. And I can deliver an incredibly powerful monologue and deliver an incredibly powerful performance for an Oscar-nominated film. I believe that film was Oscar-nominated. Yes. Yes,
0: it was. Yeah. Although she wasn't, which, you know, anyway. Um, Yeah, I... Yeah. That's... I mean, I told you, I watched this for Siraji, um, Mm -hmm. even though she wasn't in it a lot of the time. When I did see her, I was glad that I saw her um just uh i guess so did you have any more notes about the film
1: um let me see you know not many just that the the sexualization of the 12 year old boy was was really really strange um Again, like I said, because of the historical implications of it, but also now there's this stuff going on in Hollywood with the Epstein miniseries and the Mm. sex trafficking rings with minors and stuff like that. It was was all a little too much. Yeah. Yeah. And just that, you know, this will not go down in in cinema history. It will be quickly forgotten (laughs) in the public's memory if it was even there in
0: the first place (laughs) yeah it's it was one of those random Netflix movies honestly um I think like I think another thing that interests uh me with this film I I really am interested in looking at the interracial buddy film uh interracial buddy cop films that are that come out of the 1970s and 80s so like Lethal Weapon and, um, uh, was Die Hard one? Lethal Weapon is the only one that's sticking out to me right now. In the Heat of the Night, um, I'm really interested in just thinking about, like, like, the sexualization going on there, because there, with Lethal Weapon, some, some of the scenes are more, it's more overt, but in those earlier movies, the, the kind of like homoeroticism wasn't as obvious but it's still there and i yeah i'm just really interested in like those kind of films coming out at the same time of black exploitation films coming out and how how those how black exploitation films and these interracial buddy films how the interracial buddy films come to like take over the black sportation film cycle um and how the black sexuality is being portrayed in those two and just thinking about that legacy with um the the current like cop interracial films that we that we still are getting um but with a new kind of like i guess spin um mm-hmm. And I think this directly relates to your your research, what you were talking about with looking at how social movements are uh, and influencing the kind of movies that are being made. Um, this movie is definitely implicated by the conversations around Black Lives Matter and p- police brutality. Um, and it's not... It's not helpful in any way.
1: (laughs) You know, because you're you're right, and we're in this moment, and we have been for the past forever, but specifically uh, with the the past decade with the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, everybody has an opinion on Black Lives Matter, right? Um, Everybody has an opinion on police brutality, even if they say, I don't have an opinion on it. That is an, that's opinion within itself. So you have these filmmakers, and we have to remember that films, TV series, writing, art, like all of this, they come from people's ideas. Yeah. And so this is a culmination of people's thoughts. Of you know what, Coffee and Kareem boils down to is that you know, hey, not all cops are bad cops. Even if all of them except one is a good cop and it can be a white man who's a good person. And you know, the, the black boy he's, he's seen and he's older, but you know, he can be redeemed or saved by the white man. It's a very messy, it's a messy ass message and I don't like the delivery of it. And I don't like it at all. Um, but that's somebody's thoughts and ideas. Yeah. That's, that's just resonating. It's just, you know, masked by the shootouts and the explosions and the the bad comedy. (laughs) Um, but Those are people's ideas of that, you know, it's a, it's a weak take on don't judge a book by its cover. You know, that's, that's the cliche that it pivots back to. Um, And so just briefly touch on what you were saying about the interracial buddy cop films is that, my my senior thesis, which I didn't tell you the whole title of it. The title of it is "Odyssey to the Motherland, Black Men's Resistance to White Heteronormative Predators Through Homosocial Bonding." Yeah, is the whole we thing of it.
0: we have we have the with that project, and just in in terms of like how you're talking, what you're thinking, we have the exact same research interests, except you you're you're looking at it. In a different way, but still just looking at the homo bond between white and black men. Like, yeah, I, yeah, I, I've just been yeah. enjoying this conversation. <laughs> right, right,
1: right, and and so have I. And and I say that that homo social bonding that um, and for again for the just so that the the listeners won't be too um, confused about what we're talking about yeah. is basically members of the same sex, um, sort of um, developing relationships with each other in the interest of advancing the sex. Um, and then when you add layers of race and sexuality to that, it gets really, um, it becomes a matrix of uh, politicized, highly sociopolitical relationships that are very interesting. Yeah. But basically, I say all that to say is throughout history, you have had cisgendered straight black men Um, For the most part, um, wanting to form relationships with white men out of the sake of cis heteronormativity and patriarchy Mm -hmm. and saying and and sort of desiring to occupy that same space of patriarchy and developing a camaraderie. But their only issue is racism. Right. And you have black men who are not for the who are not interested or invested in the uh, liberation for black women for black trans women, for mm-hmm. black trans men, for black gender non-conforming people, black queer people, period. Mm-hmm. You have black men who are self-interested, and that's been a topic of conversation as of late, yep. um, as we talk about how so many trans people, especially black trans women, who have been murdered at the hands of cis straight black men mm-hmm. who have never really, are uh, or have largely, have not reconciled with the fact that of their desire to black trans women.
0: Yep.
1: Um, and so that homosocial binding attempt then with white men, um, I think takes many forms and, and it, those relationships and those dynamics play out in the very films that you mentioned.
0: Yeah. I, yeah. Um, yeah. I I don't have anything else to say. I, Um, I, I think it's just, I think it's just interesting that how these films come out considering the violences that are, um, that happen to black people and that continue to happen to black people and how in these films, um, of this kind of homosocial bonding, there is these there are these heavy queer, uh, no, I won't say queer. There are the these heavy like erotic and sexual undertones that with at least what I see with Coffee and Kareem are starting to become more overt, but in a way that's like not gay. And that's the whole like trick of, of watching this kind of relationship is that they can say, suck my dick, suck my dick. Uh, talk about buttholes and whatnot. But as soon as someone like, like expresses that desire, it's like gay, and it's like it's like oh no, like that's not that's not funny. Um, so I, I'm just really interested with, I guess, with my own reading of these films. Um, just pointing to just um ways like either other films that fully show these how these kind of like cop uh black men white men relationships become um how how sexuality is fully acted out even though we don't see it um like I'm really interested in explaining that because um well I don't know I I just I think I think it's just really dangerous because, um, the, the, the desires, um, that are mainly, um, coming out of white men's investment into black bodies, um, is not being addressed, uh, in a, in a, in a more explicit ways. And I think that there's just, there's a need for that to be addressed because um, there's just a lot to unpack there. hmm Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. And I think it's uh, it'll be interesting for people to see. I always tell people, never consume any kind of media passively. Yeah. Um, it's very dangerous doing that. You have to watch with a very critical eye and be questioning every decision, every word said and things like that. Um, because there are some, some real life implications. Um,
0: yep.
1: and you know, you were saying about the seventies and eighties films, um, definitely those. And I recommend people, people watch all the films. You said, um, look at hope fiction, look at training day, American mm. gangster, mm-hmm. uh,
0: Django Django. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And everything we just talked about right now
1: uh for about about these relationships between black men and white men and and the role of black women white feminine look at Jane go Jane.
0: that's uh, a good and, case and, study you know,
1: <laughs> and that's that's all there um and you'll you'll see that and once we say it and people hear it and they watch these films the beautiful
0: thing about these conversations is they won't forget I will say um and I I know we've been talking about this uh for a while, but it's been a great conversation, and it's just been super helpful to me. I will say, um, have you heard of a film called Mandingo? It I have not. It's so Mandingo. It's like a I don't know when it came out in the seventies, and it's based on this plantation drama. And when the film was made, it was like just um. It, it kind of got this like treatment like, oh, it's so bad. It It's like super sexual, blah, 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 blah. Um, and this is where the Mandingo fantasy um, kind of comes from. What we see in uh, porn of the BBC and things like that. This all comes from this culture around Mandingo. Um, and so even though this film was, when it came out, it was just really like, just outcasted as this just really bad film that was like like super sexual it it has been the only film thus far to show me how this dynamic um between white like white and black men and and white and black women on like on the like and I guess it's because it's on the plantation it just does a really good job of showing white men's desires for black bodies and how um white women are basically there's this slave master's son who wanted to get a enslaved person to go on this kind of like Mandigo fighting circuit. um, And they're super, the white men in that film are super, super interested in black men's anuses. Their, mm-hmm. their buttholes come up a lot in the film. Like there's this opening scene where there there. There's these black men about to be sold off. And one of the white men asked to look inside of his butthole um, to see if he was clean or something like that. Um, so the black male anus is kind of like sprinkled out through this film, and then we have this interest in the black male body to uh fight other black men um to gain money or whatever. But this white slave master's uh son um is really like the first time he sees the enslaved person he wants to like buy there's this like slow pull in and he's like, it's like almost as if like time has stopped for them. It's really, it's really romanticized. Um, and then this same uh, slave master's son has a relationship with an enslaved black woman who he kind of like buys from another plantation and brings on his plantation um, after he's married his cousin. Uh, and so the, the, the white woman is, Um, who, who's the cousin he's married, she starts to see that he's more interested in the enslaved black woman. So she, um, sleeps with the Mandingo that he bought to fight and she like manipulates him and kind of like tells, like basically gets him to have sex with her and then claims it was rape. Um, and kind of like, I think we don't find this out. I think we find out this when she has the baby because he wasn't, the Slave Master's son wasn't having sex with her because he was having sex with the the black woman. And so she did this as a way to get his attention. Like she got pregnant to get his attention. But when she has the baby, the baby is mixed. And so he immediately knows that she had sex with the mandingo they kill the baby um and then the mandingo is uh cooked in boiling hot water he's thrown into a tub of like hot water and he just he's just cooked in it and that's how the film ends listen listen
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna send you my paper okay I'm going to send you my paper because I I talk about uh and this is from first of all the 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 liturgy the the constant sustained conversation of consumption both literally and figuratively in regards to black homosexuality and black homoeroticism um, specifically for black men is there's so much to it
0: yeah. Uh, there's Vincent Woodard's Woodard. book. Woodard, yeah, um, I was going to ask if you read that. Yeah, Woodard, yeah. Delectable yes, Vincent Negro. Vincent Woodard's book is um, uh, homoeroticism and
1: cannibalism in U.S. slave culture. I don't have the book in front of me, but I think that's the title. Uh,
0: it's um, the, the Delectable Negro and then that's the yeah. subtitle, yeah. yeah.
1: Yes, The Delectable Negro. Um, and, and in that paper, I talk about how one of the forms of resistance, and that's the whole uh, thing with my white heteronormative predators, the thing about the predators is that there's this uh, history of this really this hunt uh, and the different kinds of predators that we face, both the um, people themselves white people and the systems like slavery, mass incarceration um, and even the response to the HIV and AIDS epidemic. Hmm. I'll send you that paper
0: Oh, um, yeah, for sure
1: if you want to read, I'm just no.
0: I definitely no. I definitely. I was gonna ask, but I didn't. I don't know how you. You know, some people don't want to share their work, <laughs> but um, no, I definitely want to read that. Uh, and so that's what all this bringing up to me
1: because cannibalism and uh, and that kind of violence uh, is very much uh, has has implications for the. Gay community today, mm-hmm. uh, and and Black gay men's experience with, with, within the gay community today.
0: Yeah, like with Ed Buck and um, yeah before him Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's very much it's very much from the from the smallest
1: interactions all the way down to the 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 fetishization of the BBC. Mm-hmm. How our entire bodies are fixated on and fetishized, but um, very rarely are we given access to any kind of love and intimacy mm-hmm. is directly linked to slavery.
0: Yep, yep. But what I will say about Mandingo, at least, is that it 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 portrays those horrors of 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 white men's desires, and I don't know if it wanted to do that, but it 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 definitely like you will not if you watch that movie you will not leave it go like thinking like something other than that you won't leave it saying oh there were some good slave slave masters no you'll leave it saying white men are fucking crazy and that's and and white women are spiteful (laughs) In, in this context um not all white people. I don't want to get attacked. <laughs> but still, but still, it's just it's a really grueling portrayal of that dynamic and I just find it interesting that they the film was outcasted. I guess it was like it it was too real.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we we have talked about a lot and uh I'm really grateful for it and yeah this was a fun conversation so we have now come to the end of the show part of the show i like to call so done and it's basically where you just get off your chest whatever annoyed you for the week so brian what are you so done with
1: oh child i am done with i am done with it all i'm done with the white women who go into stores and yell and throw things at people because they don't want to wear masks.
0: Yeah, I'm done with the the white
1: YouTubers and influencers who are overtly. It doesn't even matter. I'm gonna remove the word overtly because I have feelings about overt and covert racism because I feel like all racism is overt.
0: Oh, uh, yep, yep. Uh,
1: who are who are racist and and they do all kinds of uh, messed up stuff. I, I'm over that, um, and I'm, I'm over, you know, the slangs of my people. I'm so done with that, but um, I am energized. I know this isn't part of the prompt, but I'm energized by the resilience mm. that we've um, shown. Um, and also, because this is, like, relevant, something about the, the Jada Pinkett Smith, August Alcino, Will Smith drama is really
0: keeping me going this week and i don't i don't know what's going on with that the drama the
1: drama i just watched the red table talk and everything
0: oh um, i was
1: good
0: i gotta go briefly what's going on because i, I want to know if i want to be invested in it oh yeah briefly what well, august
1: Alcina came out and said that he had a relationship with jada pinkett smith um, given the permission of Will Smith and that was the thing that was going on. They were sleeping together and stuff like that. Um, and so Jada Pinkett Smith recently released an abbreviated episode of the Red Table Talk with her and Will Smith sort of explaining what was going on at the time. And I actually, I, I commend the way she handled it. She was honest. You know, she said that it happened. They both were honest and saying that they were having marriage issues and that, you know, they're together. And I commend, I think that was probably the best way she could have responded to it. She didn't throw August under the bus. She didn't, you know, try and say that he was, you know, something was wrong with him. She was honest, you know. She said, this is what the relationship was, and then it's over, and then, you know, me and Will are good. So, yeah, Black Twitter has now put Jada Pinkett Smith Uh, in the same category as future and it's absurd but I've been cracking up at the tweets (laughs) all
0: day you gotta have some kind of entertainment in these times right yeah
1: and what are you so done with
0: okay um hmm so the other day I had like so me and my grandma have been kind of like our relationship has kind of been rocky because of her finding out that I was gay and then her like being upset about that. (laughs) Um, And so it got to a point to where um, every time I would talk to her, um, she would just say these terrible things. um, And it got to a point to where I was like, okay, um, well, with the help of therapy, I was able to say, okay, um, I don't like when you talk to me this way. I get that you don't agree with with how I live my life, but it makes me not want to talk to you. Um and then so after she heard that, she kind of like stopped. Um and then I recently talked to her um this weekend and she was saying how she wanted to check out the podcast and things like that and I was just thinking I was like, well, um she's just going to have to be comfortable with me being gay as fuck on this platform because I, I talk about, I, I'm just myself on here, and when she said, like, she wanted to listen to the podcast, it instantly, like, brought on some anxiety for me, because I was like, oh, like, she's probably gonna call me and, like, say, like, just some homophobic shit to me because of the stuff that I say on here and how I express myself, and, like, I just got really, like, scared, and I was like... Well, I'm not going to censor myself on my own podcast, my own, like, kind of, like, place where I express myself. So she's just going to have to be all right with it. But I, it's just still, it's just like still an awkward, like, it's still like a conflict for me because I want to continue to have that relationship with her, but I can't, I just won't have a relationship with her if she's going to, like, not, um, Not support me and, and, and not, uh, accept me for who I am. And so I guess I'm so done with this feeling of like feeling like I have to censor myself around my family. Um, I'm really done with that feeling because, um, I really want to have a connection with my family. I really do. And I'm still hurt at a lot of things that I experienced when I was little, just being a feminine little black gay boy, um, growing up in the South, just, um, yeah, I'm really hurt at some of the stuff. I'm really hurt at how, uh, femininity was just kind of like a negative thing in general. And like, I don't, I don't want to have to censor myself anymore. I want to fully be myself and express myself in a way that I see fit, in the way that I feel comfortable. Um, and so, I think, I think for me, I'm, I'm so I'm done with feeling like that. So I think now it's just gonna be like when family members, whoever, come at me with some homophobic shit, I think I'm just gonna turn on my like grad grad student professor mode and just be like, hmm what inspires that thought? Hmm. Could you explain this more? Where are you getting this thought from? Just like really interrogating those thoughts because not only are those harmful to me, they're harmful to, to you as well, because these are ideas that are coming out of, uh, like most things, slavery and just white heteropatriarchy. Um, and these are still rules that, Many older folks in our in the in the black community still uh, follow, and I'm just kind of like done with the fact that because they still have these ideas, I feel like I can't um, fully express myself and or or fully be myself around them and fully have a relationship with my family. Um, so, yeah, I'm just I'm just done with with feeling feeling like I have to mute myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's so important that you
1: say that and and that people hear that Because uh, again, I feel like a lot of times people think that You know just being gay and being black and gay, you know, we get seen a lot as you know The shady sassy quirky funny ones and and not a lot of our issues get highlighted um, But I think those boundaries that you set in place. They're so necessary yeah. to have and as I tell my kids Because I got kids, you know, um, anybody who who watches Pose knows about the sort of familial bonds of chosen family and the LGBTQ community. I tell my kids sometimes, you have to love yourself enough to let people go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: So, you know, you have to choose you and choose you first.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Do you call yourself a mother or a father?
1: I call myself a mother. Yes. A yes. They can call me. They can call me father, but i I'll be like, come, come to mother. Come to mother.
0: Okay, cause I was gonna say thank you for that mother, that mother knowledge, <laughs> but I didn't know if you went by mother or father. So, <laughs> thank you for the the mother knowledge. Yeah. Um. No problem. Yeah. All right. So. Brian, thank you for coming on. You can follow the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at Go Black Boy Go, and you can follow Brian on social media at The Afro B, both on
1: Twitter and Instagram at the B.
0: And yeah, thank you guys for listening to this episode. And Brian, thank you so much for <laughs> taking out two hours of your day to talk to me about uh, film and uh homoeroticism homosocial bonding white men and black men and taraji Henson and lil kim
1: (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for having me it was a pleasure and my joy and i'd love to speak to you anytime again
0: yeah all right and see you next week oh my god that was so great I definitely used to be scared of the dick.
1: (laughs) And now I throw. (laughs)